All right, everyone, checking in with another episode of the Steve Laidlaw Pod. We are pleased to be joined by the Athletics' Dom Luchitian, and we are redrafting the 2003 NHL draft. Dom, how are you doing? Not too bad, just living the life in quarantine, as I'm sure everyone else is. No doubt, and you mentioned that 2003 is quite the step back in time for you. You said you were preteen at that point. So what do you remember from, from 2003 as a young fan? I was 11, I think. So not too much of a memory, but I know I was playing hockey and I'm getting really into the world juniors. So this uh, like first time in my life where I was like really like paying attention to the younger guys and I remember that like I think it was the start of the gold medal run for Canada um I think or, or the golden team where I think during the lockout like everyone was on it. it was one of the best world junior teams ever or whatever I don't know I was 12 this is just my recollection of it but I think that was when I really started like getting into hockey and then you see all these guys really start having such great careers and it's a, a deep draft class that it's one of the more interesting ones over the last few decades yeah absolutely given your age at the time i when i told you that we were gonna be heading heading well back in time i, I kind of gave you the choice of one to pick out and so certainly i think you you chose well with this one being widely considered perhaps the best draft class of all time. And yeah, you're bang on. These guys were 19 years old and a lot of them playing in the AHL during the lockout season. And they were free to head off to the world juniors, which, which kicks off the, what eventually became the drive for five for Canada. And so I think that's where a lot of fans really became fans of the world juniors. Certainly, World Juniors was on my radar by that point, but that took it to a whole other level. We're coming off of a Ducks-Devils Stanley Cup final where J.S. Jaguer wins the Conn Smythe as the losing goaltender, which has not happened since and was fully well-deserved. There was also a legendary goal from Paul Correa in game six, he gets knocked out by one of those Scott Stevens hits. That would be like a 50-game suspension now. <laughs> and he's laying there on the ice motionless. And the only reason you don't think he's dead is because of the moisture coming out of his mouth from his breath. So you know he's breathing, is fogging up his visor. And he leaves the game but comes back and scores a goal that he famously doesn't even remember and they forced game seven and and ultimately lost to the devils but that's also the devil's last cup win so that's kind of where we're at in the hockey world did you have any other recollections dom uh i was 11 and i think that was around the time the leafs were still actually doing playoff stuff and one of my elementary school teachers loved scott stevens and i hated Scott Stevens and that hit on Korea really like said it all for me like he was just 
it didn't seem like anything he did should have been legal. And I think looking back in hindsight, I can't believe that it was allowed because it was just so predatory. Yeah, I stand by the notion that at the time I thought all of those hits were elbows and you can mm-hmm. convince me of otherwise. But I'm sure a lot of people would tell you that those are clean shoulder checks and that's just how the game was played. But that has aged quite poorly. Yeah. So getting into the draft now, uh, let's break down the order of the actual picks. So at number one, the Florida Panthers, they win the lottery for the second year in a row. And for the second year in a row, Rick Dudley decides he's going to trade back, which he does a whole bunch of times. He does it in 99 as part of the sequence that lands the Sedins in Vancouver. And now he's the GM of the Panthers and he's doing it all over again. So uh, the trade ends up being the Panthers giving up number one and a third rounder for number three, a second rounder and Mikhail Samuelson from the Penguins. And honestly, in this draft class, there isn't a consensus number one. So that's actually decent value. Now, certainly we haven't seen the exponential curves of the value of number one versus number three. So he probably should have gotten more, but I think he ends up getting the guy they were going to take anyway. Was Horn their guy at the time? Yeah, so the top of the draft is, like, it, the Penguins end up taking Flurry, mm-hmm. but the highest-ranked guys are Nathan Horton, I believe, is number two, and then Eric Stahl is number one. And a lot of people really like the playoffs that Horton had in the OHL that spring. So he's kind of the guy they're thinking about taking anyway. So they're able to trade back and get their guy anyway, which they also did the previous year, taking Jay Bo Meester at number three after mm-hmm. having traded back. Yeah, man, Horton, Horton was really good before all the injuries too. So I don't, I don't mind that pick, but obviously didn't out too well. No, and they don't make the playoffs once in Horton's decade with them. Yeah. So. And do you think they might have made the playoffs if they had hindsight, if they got a, a redraft? Well, that would be interesting because certainly they could have drafted a player who has a much larger impact because Horton really doesn't hit his stride until he joins those Bruins teams mm-hmm. where yeah. he up with Lucic and Krejci and they're just running over second and third lines. Yeah. He also, like, I remember, I remember those teams. I remember that trade. I really liked Horton at the time. And, like, he had no help at all in Florida. That was, like, one of the big issues. Like, he was a consistent 60-point guy there, but I don't know. Who was he playing with? Like, Stephen Weiss or something? Yeah, there's so, a whole lot of Stephen Weiss and Michael Froelich and Corey Stillman. Yeah, that's, that's gross. <laughs> it's, no wonder they didn't make the playoffs. It's bleak. And, like, Jay Bomeister is their number one defenseman, and he's an awesome shutdown guy, but they're using him like he's a do-it-all guy, and he has some 10-goal seasons just bombing from the point. <laughs> obviously, you're going to get some points playing uh, 
like 25 plus minutes a night. Mm -hmm. So the Penguins end up trading up and they take Flurry and Craig Patrick, the Penguins GM at the time, declares him far and away the best goalie in this draft class, which is interesting to think about because you've got some Corey Crawford, Yarrow Halak, Jimmy Howard, and Brian Elliott in are the better goalies from this draft class. Do you think history proved him right on that one? Uh, I do. I do. I do think Fleury was probably the best goalie just for his longevity and the fact he's been a starter. But I don't think it was that far away that he should have been the top pick in the draft. Obviously, it's different in hindsight, but can you imagine trading up to get a goalie for first overall? I feel like if that decision was made, like, in the future, the meltdown on social media would be absolutely insane. And, like, I don't know, it's just a huge risk with the way goalies would be. Well, yeah, that'd be, like if a team were to trade up, like if the Ottawa Senators lose with both of their lottery picks and they trade up to take Yaroslav Askarov <laughs> this summer. It'd be insane. Yeah, there would be quite the meltdown. This pick is made after a run of some goalies really not working out for teams at the top end of the draft, like DiPietro, goes number one in 2000. Uh, there's some talk of Dan Blackburn on the telecast when the pick is made as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's there's some chance of this turning out quite poorly for them. And they're talking about how they really shouldn't allow Flurry to make the jump right to the NHL as an 18-year-old and have to play behind Pittsburgh's awful team. Yeah. But then he makes the team out of camp and they give him 22 games before they mercifully send him down and he plays in the world juniors and gets to go back to the queue. But like the lockout hits after that happens. And I don't think there was any saving the penguins from themselves without that lockout. So, and then you think about what happens with them getting Malkin in the next draft and then the crazy draft lottery that was the Crosby sweepstakes, which may or may not have been rigged for Pittsburgh. (laughs) May or may not, yeah. They end up with the best, like, three-year run of draft picks, picking one, two, one, and getting two all-time greats plus a number one goalie, and they almost maybe ruined that goalie by playing him way too early, but the lockout happens, so they can't do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they also got Jordan Stahl the next year, too. Yeah. It, and it could have been even more legendary if they picked Taves instead. Can you imagine that? Oh, man, that would be... Yeah, that's one of the all-time what-if situations of NHL history, I think. Because mm-hmm. it was conceivable that they could have made that pick. There are yeah. some where... You, you wouldn't want to do that what if just because it wasn't realistic, but certainly that one was. Yeah, I think I, I saw a story on The Athletic today about a what if that actually did happen. So go to The Athletic and read, subscribe. That's my pitch for the day. <laughs> right on. I'm going to look that up when we finish up here. So at number two, 
Carolina, they stay in their spot. And this is an interesting couple year run for them. They play in the O2 Cup final, losing to Detroit. And then they finish dead last and wind up with the number two pick. And they take the He's not consensus number one, but he's he's ranked number one in mm-hmm. Eric Stahl, the big number one centerman. Yeah, and even imagine if the Penguins took him instead of Fleury. A lot oh, of uh, a lot of possibilities here. But yeah, he he's up there for me for this draft class. Obviously, he's had a tremendous career. I think he's is he the only one who hit yeah, he's the only one who's hit a thousand points. So I think that says a lot. Yeah, he starts high and stays high. He only has really two years there where he he really lags off and one of them is the year that he ends up getting traded to the rangers Mm -hmm. but then he pops right back up in minnesota and is surprisingly lights out yeah so florida number three they've traded back as we alluded to they take nathan horton who they had been rumored to covet anyway at number four, the Columbus Blue Jackets, they take Nikolai Zherdev. And Doug McLean, who's the GM at the time, indicates that he's the number one player on their board. And you hate to like do the <laughs> xenophobic, enigmatic Russian thing, but he, he plays into it so hard. Yeah, that's, that's an unfortunate one because Zherdev was sick when he was coming up like he had a lot of talent and it just it never really worked out I feel like those Columbus teams were sort of like Florida where they didn't have much surrounding him either yeah do you think Zherdev was Rick Nash's best ever line mate I mean maybe yeah I I would need to like really look into uh the line mate situations but so only one one. player with Rick Nash ever records a 70 point season while he's on the team in Columbus. Mm -hmm. And that's in his rookie year, Ray Whitney. Might be, might be Ray Whitney then. (laughs) (laughs) It is, it is bleak. Yeah. That that situation in Columbus, but look at them now. Yeah. They're, they're thriving despite superstar exodus of last summer no doubt and i think strength on the blue line and you got to give tortorella some credit he he rebounded from from some serious downs Mm -hmm. for sure uh so jerdev just a quick backstory for folks who aren't really up on his game so he has a brief stay in Russia before coming over right after this draft, and he plays 57 games as an 18-year-old uh, before the lockout, and he's pretty good. And then he heads back to Russia for the lockout, I believe, and then he has another good year. He, it's probably his best season is, is post-lockout, and then he holds out goes back to Russia, stay, hangs out, and then finally he, he signs a new deal with Columbus and comes back and he's just awful. So that's quite reminiscent of the uh, Willie Nylander situation. Mm-hmm. But then he has a great year, again, in, in a contract year, and 
then gets himself traded to New York for Fedor Tiutin and Christian Bachman. And he ends up the leading scorer on the Rangers in 08-09. And they make the playoffs. That leads to salary arbitration. I think he gets awarded like three and a half million. And the Rangers are like, nah. <laughs> so Zherdev gets, he turns into a free agent, signs with no one, heads back to Russia, misses the entire following season. Then he comes back as a free agent in Philly where he wears out his welcome. I think like he's immediately in Peter Laviolette's doghouse mm-hmm. and he's never seen from again. This is, this is a weird career. I really feel like he was in the NHL longer than like five, six full seasons. This is insane to look at. Right. But it, it spans like 10 years because mm-hmm. there's so many fits and starts. Yeah. Yeah, what could have been? So at number five, the Buffalo Sabres are looking for some offense, and they take Thomas Vanek, the pride of Vienna, Austria. Probably best Austrian player ever, right? Oh, he's got to be. I don't know any others off the top of my head. <laughs> and a strange route. Like, he goes USHL, then destroys college in mm-hmm. his draft year the draft preview that i was reading uh described him as basically his ceiling was jason allison and his floor was pavel brendel those seem like such strange comparables <laughs> and then it, it it says that uh, uh a scout indicates that he would drive a coach nuts yeah which he pretty much ended up doing. Mm-hmm. Man, Jason Allison, there's a name. And his career looks just as weird. Did he like did he leave because of injuries or what's going on here? Because he left scoring 60 points for in 66 games for the Leafs. Remember that year like hating him because he was the slowest man alive. But I mean he still put up numbers. Was he a the lockout happened and I'm kind of done? guy or did he play post lockout he played one year post lockout and he put up he scored at like a 75 point pace no kidding i bet you he was uh banging some points on those extra power plays they were calling that year i mean yeah he was a power play god just don't put him in the shootout (laughs) if you wanted to watch paint dry yeah put jason allison in the shootout so at number six, Milan Mahalik is the pick for San Jose, and he's viewed as a kind of a safe pick. And I don't think he's going to end up in our redraft, but I think mm-hmm. that he is quite forgotten to time, but underrated. He was he, a really good two-way guy as a winger. He came as advertised. He was safe. He played over 700 games, 500 points. That's pretty much an average ask for a six overall pick. Can't really complain about that. Yeah. He only gets Selkie votes in one season, but I think he was good enough to, to get it a few more times. He has a 35 goal year and a couple of 60 point seasons, but I think his headstone reads traded for Danny Healy. Yeah. I remember that trade thinking like that's all for Danny Healy. 
And I mm-hmm. feel like he ended, he ended up outlasting Ely too. Absolutely. Yeah. He hangs around for a while. It was, it was kind of a precipitous drop for Heatley after that first season, the Sharks. Yeah. Yeah. So at number seven, the Nashville Predators take Ryan Suter. And when I had Scott Wheeler on the pod, he mentioned that Mike Commissarek in 2001 was kind of the start of uh, national team development program guys going mm-hmm. in the draft, but Commissarek is even drafted out of college. Teams are really, and you see it in this draft as well, teams aren't drafting college guys until they've done it for at least a year, but yeah. Suter gets picked at 18 right out of the program. Interesting. Yeah, I'm not a, I'm not a draft buff, so I don't really know the history, but that's, that's a good tidbit from Scott. Indeed. Yeah, I think that well, maybe we'll do this now. One of the reasons that I think that the depth of this draft class is so grand is because of the national team development program gaining steam. Like by this point, lots of guys are getting picked out of that program, still having to go to college, but they're coming through that program and it's becoming a place for lots of players to go to develop. And mm-hmm. so you end up with this massive crop of really good American players coming into this draft. And I think it just beefs it up to a whole other level. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So at number eight, the Atlanta Thrashers take Braden Coburn and the draft profile that I was reading on him described him as a big defenseman who will play in the league for 10 to 15 years. And I think we're within range of that prediction. That's that's a really good prediction. Where did who who wrote that? That is from the Hockey News. Wow, good for them. He made his debut in 2005, and he's still playing in 2020. So, 15 years right there. <laughs> and his career high was 36 points. Only time he ever eclipsed 30. Amazing. Yeah, no kidding. I think that he got a ton of mileage in like in and around the 2010 times when he's playing on those Flyers teams and from being a top 10 pick in this lauded 03 draft class, he gets additional hype for what he is, but yeah, he's that scouting report to a T. Yeah. I feel like he's uh, the embodiment of that famous Mike Babcock quote about being 6'5 every time he's out on the ice. And it doesn't matter if he's doing a really good job when he's on the ice, he's 6'5. Yeah, that, <laughs> that is bang on. Oh, man. Okay, so at number nine, the Calgary Flames. Apparently, the book is out before this draft even happens that Daryl Sutter is determined to take a Canadian. He said, no, I'm, I'm taking a Canadian with this pick. Which That's the is, dumbest thing I've ever heard. Right. <laughs> and they land on Dion Phaneuf who, Oh, surprise. He played for his brother in red deer, uh, but it's not a terrible classic. pick. No, no, it's not. Um, like he was a bit overrated through his career, but he was still, he still had a solid career. Yeah. And 
Like I'm trying to think of the cross sport analogy for FNUF and he's, he's almost like a running back in the sense that like his value, like wasn't as high as what it looked like, but he's awesome. As soon as he lands in the league, here's his first four years. Oh five, Oh six, 20 goals, 49 points. He's playing 21 plus minutes a night, finishes third in the Calder, eighth in the Norris. The following season, 17 goals, 50 points. He's playing over 25 minutes a night, sixth in the Norris. The next season, this is, this is probably the peak FNUF, 17 goals, 60 points, 26 plus minutes a night, second in the Norris. He's a first team all-star and he finishes 12th in heart voting. And then mm. he follows that up with 11 goals, 47 points, and uh, more Norris votes as a 26 plus minute a night guy playing in the playoffs. And then he plays half a year for Calgary the following year and gets traded to the Leafs. Yeah. And of course we can forget the uh, double D on courtesy of uh, Pierre Maguire. I was going to ask, was his peak not in the world juniors? Because that is an absolute all time call by Pierre. I, I, I think it has to be. <laughs> like everyone remembers it's a double D on. Absolutely. Interesting tidbit apparent from the, uh, from the telecast, Bob McKenzie's dropping knowledge. And he, he says that if FNUF had not been available, that the flames would have taken Mike Richards here and he's Canadian. Mm. So fits the bill. That's a pretty interesting. Uh, what if. Yeah, and I feel like, I don't know if Mike Richards is the Dion Phaneuf of defensemen, but like he might be the way he had such a, such a high peak and then just became overrated pretty quickly. Yeah, Richards, I mean, he's from northwestern Ontario, uh, where, where I'm from, and I remember in the summers he would come home and would play in these softball tournaments and some of my buddies would play them in them. And I, mm -hmm. I, I'd see him at these tournaments and he was so tiny for this guy <laughs> who just destroyed people on the ice. Yeah. And like, he can't have been more than 165 pounds soaking wet, which that's, you're just, you're just not going to be able to sustain his playing style. Yeah, playing that way sure. but Richards was a guy for me like you know how all the pros have a shot that just it sounds different mm -hmm. so Richards was a guy who his shot was even another level different from what all the pros sounded like like I remember going extra early to a preseason game that my buddy and I went to watch of the Flyers in London and the sound that his shot made was just different from everyone else on the ice. <laughs> it was crazy. It's like that, that crack of the bat when a guy just absolutely annihilates yeah. a ball. He, he was that. Just something yeah, else. He, he got every ounce out of, that, out of that body of his. That very slender frame, he, he made it count. Absolutely. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if either of those guys go in the redraft. Because, like, if we're talking 2009, 2010, those guys might be both be top five picks. 
in a redraft. Mm -hmm. So at number 10, Montreal takes Andre Kostitsin. And I will only ever remember him from getting suspended along with his brother and Radulov in Nashville for going out partying in the playoffs. <laughs> you just got to respect the hustle there. That's predating Tyler Sagan too. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> so at number 11, the Philadelphia Flyers are picking the result of a trade. So in the summer of 01, the Flyers traded Damon Lankow to the Coyotes for the choice of either a 2002 first and a 2003 second or a 2003 first and a 2002 second. And they decide to defer and end up with the 2003 first, which is awesome because this draft class is loaded. And at the time, Carter is viewed as talented, but he's also viewed as a bit of a reach. Interesting. I feel like a lot of the time when teams reach, like it turns out okay. Maybe that's just like selective memory. Remember, for example, Winnipeg reached on uh, Mark Shifley. The Leafs, I think, reached on Nazem Kadri, and both those turned out to be really good picks. Yeah, Ryan Johansson is is the guy who fits that bill for me, and the because the comparison mm. for him were to Carter at the time that he was drafted. And then speaking of reaches, at number 12, the New York Rangers select Hugh Jessamine, or as he became known, Huge Specimen. <laughs> I feel like that was a Pierre Maguire special. Am I right or am I right? You're bang on once again. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, so this was a reach at the time? Oh, yeah. Like, he's – he has a monster season in Dartmouth in college that year. But, yeah. like, he wasn't on anyone's radar before <laughs> that. Like, That makes all. this pick so much funnier. And like, they, I just – I thought – I really just thought that, like, the Rangers got unlucky with the only pick in the entire first round to not have a – strong career and it turns out that it was their own doing by taking someone off the board yeah absolutely and it's not like crazy off the board but i think he's graded as like a second rounder in the hockey news oh my god and, but this pick is it's classic glenn sather like he loves <laughs> him some huge specimen oh my god i don't think he'll be in the redraft no he's not in the redraft i had russ cohen on the 04 redraft pod and he mm -hmm. was covering drafts back at this point and like this pick was so out of left field for him that he thought it was a bad pick but he hadn't seen him so he sends a scout to dartmouth the next year to mm -hmm. find out like if it's good and the reports did not come back well apparently they had him playing at the point on the power play because their their huge specimen wasn't good in the net front. Interesting. Damn. What a, yeah. what a weird pick. I think he plays into two games or something like that. 
and he eventually gets traded to Nashville for future considerations. And I think the future considerations were don't ever mention Hugh Jessamine to us again. <laughs> oh my God. So at number 13, the LA Kings take Dustin Brown and he's, he actually is the number two skater in North America ranked by CSS, but just reading some draft stuff in the, in ESPN and they're not buying that ranking at all. Wow. So he dropped all of the 13, eh? Yeah. Apparently CSS was just out on an island with that assessment and everyone else is like, no, he's good, but not in this draft. Interesting. I mean, he popped off in the, his draft year and he was strong the year before. So I wonder yeah, what, and uh, he ends up being a good pick. Yeah, he was, a, he was a really good pick. I think he's probably one of the more underrated players of this era just for like, really, I feel like the whole shift in analytics to really looking at penalty differential. I think he was the poster boy for that. Yeah. And I don't want to go off on too big of a rant, but penalty differential is, it would be meaningful if refing wasn't such a, we got to make up for this. Like yeah. everyone gets a turn crock of shit. Mm-hmm. So like every yeah. team has a Dustin Brown who, Oh yeah. You're the guy who gets all the penalties. And then it, there's an even up call 10 minutes later. So here's the thing, like that is true, but Dustin Brown's peak like, I think his penalty differential was, like, two or three times higher than, like, McDavid in his best year. So, like, at, at those times, I think he was providing, like, very real value. And I think once penalty differential became, like, a more mainstream thought, I think refs really started leading into more even-up calls. Interesting. That's my, that's my theory. So, Dustin Brown has... His penalty differentials have aged poorly. In, in retrospect, he was even more impactful. Yeah, just not in the way he, he was hoping, maybe. I could buy that. The Kings also have picks number 26 and 27 in this draft class, and they take Brian Boyle and Jeff Tambellini, which for this draft class doesn't work out that well, even when... though Boyle turns into a pretty good pro. I mean, not when pick 28 is Corey Perry. Yeah. Interesting on Perry. Reading some some draft profiles, he's thought to be like a safe pick, but he's going to top out as a third liner. That's a, that's a rough analysis, <laughs> yeah. eh? And it, it, as it turns out, he's the only guy from this draft class to win a Hart Trophy. Interesting. Even if everyone knows that was Daniel Sidine's hard trophy. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you on that one, I think. At number 14, the Blackhawks take Brent Seabrook. Yeah, that's a, that was a good one until he got that loyalty contract. Right. And now it's not looking so great. Right. He had a great he, career. Yeah, like 10 Excellent years contributing to a multi-cup champion team. Mm-hmm. Even Very made, nice pick. He even made it the Olympic team, I think, once. 
I don't yeah, know if yeah. it was deservedly so, but he made it. Yeah, that was a legacy thing. Yeah. Team, Team Canada, they've got a lot of tough choices to make. Yeah. And they don't always make the right ones. <laughs> At number 15, number 15 is always a bad pick, unless Eric Carlson or Alexander Kovalev is getting picked. 15 is always a bad pick. And this time we get another edition of Mike Milbury channeling Joe Bluth. I've made a huge mistake. They take Robert Nelson. Yeah. Robert Nelson over Prize, Getzlaff, Burns, Kessler, Richards, Perry. Not ideal. Not ideal. No. And what's crazy is Nelson, he plays in the Swedish Elite League at 17. And I think he's, he plays for, like, the same team uh, that Marcus Naslin did. And, like, mm-hmm. he breaks Naslin's rookie record for scoring. So, And he's also the son of an NHLer, so he's got bloodlines. And he's just loaded with talent. And he even gets into 200 games, and, like, he has one decent year for what ends up being the Oilers. Mm-hmm. I, it just it never comes together. Yeah, and it's interesting looking at the Swedish league stats. I wonder if he just had like a PDO bender or something in that draft year because the next year he scores just six points. Yeah, but he even plays on their world junior team and I think he's like point per game Mm back-to-back years. I feel like the world juniors has been like the worst thing for scouts because it gets just overrated, this 10-game sample or whatever. Yeah, and like even less than that, frankly. Yeah. And you're only playing competitive games in like three or four of them. Yeah. But it's the only scouting that I'll end up doing. So, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so Nielsen, he does end up becoming a trade chip in the Ryan Smith deal that uh, everyone lost. That everyone lost. That is a, that feels like an apps description. There's one pick that we got to talk about. You referenced Zach Parise. Mm-hmm. So, how up on 90s RFA compensation are you, Dom? Uh, a little bit. I have read the Wikipedia article back in the day when I've like written about offer sheets, but. Don't know if it's on my head, but if you say it, I'll be like, oh, yes, yes, I recall. Okay, so in the 90s, RFA compensation was determined by an arbitrator. Mm -hmm. The RFA would sign their offer sheet, and if the other team declined to match, then each team would present what they thought was appropriate compensation. And then the arbitrator was like, I have to pick one of these. Mm Mm-hmm. The early 90s blues are in love with this process. I I do recall them popping up a lot. Yeah. So in 1990, they sign away the aforementioned Scott Stevens from the Capitals. And it's determined that they owe five first round picks (laughs) as as compensation. I mean, fair. Yeah. Yeah. He's, uh, he's an all-timer for sure. And then in 91, the Blues try to sign Brendan Shanahan away from the Devils. 
but the Blues still all, owe all these picks to the Capitals from signing away Stevens. So they end up offering Rob Brindamore, Curtis Joseph, and a couple of picks. And the Devils are like, nah, Scott Stevens, that's what we want. And the arbitrator picks the Stevens side. So they give Stevens to the Devils as compensation. And Stevens at this point is so much more highly regarded than Brandon Shanahan. Because Shanahan's only a few years into the league. Mm -hmm. So the Blues are pissed. Stevens is pissed. He doesn't want to go to New Jersey. He literally just signed to play for the Blues a year before. But he goes to New Jersey and he plays out his contract. And then in the summer of 94, even though the Devils, I think they just came within a game of going to the cup final, they still have that Mickey Mouse franchise stink on them. Yeah. And the Blues go to sign him to another offer sheet, which this time the Devils match. And the Devils are pissed. But Stevens is pissed. And everyone's pissed. And the Devils cry tampering. Five years later, in 99, the NHL finally rules on this tampering case. And they decide the Blues are guilty. So they've got to pay almost a million and a half to the Devils. They have to give the Devils a first rounder in any of the next five drafts. And they also give the Devils the option to swap a first rounder in any of the next five drafts. So if you're this doing is insanity, the, right? So if you're doing the math, the next five drafts, 2003, this is the last year that the Devils have to swap this first rounder. And they just so happened to have won the cup. So instead of picking 30th, they exercise their swap rights and move up to 22. And that gives them, along with their second rounder, uh, picking 68th, the ammunition they need to move up five spots with the Oilers to select Zach Parise. This is one of the greatest hockey trade trees I've ever heard. <laughs> and I'm surprised I've only heard it today. Like, I feel like I'm in the know for a lot of things, and this is just insane. Like, the Blues ended up with Sean Bell, who is the only other bust in this first round. <laughs> and the Oilers blow both of their picks, mm -hmm. taking Marc-Antoine Pouliot and Jean-Francois Jacques, who... <laughs> He has three first names. Yeah, it's not trustworthy. <laughs> so the Oilers somehow come out of the best draft class ever with Kyle Brodziak as their best player. That is uh, what we call not ideal. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so one more piece of lore from this draft. Alex Ovechkin is two days too young for this draft class. You got to be like 18 by the 15th mm -hmm. and his birthday yeah. is like September 17th. And so once the draft gets into the later rounds, our man Rick Dudley 
starts every pick, he's he's asking the NHL if Ovechkin's eligible for the draft. And he's arguing that if you discount leap years, that he would be <laughs> old enough for the draft. I have heard of that one. That's, uh, that's a classic. Yeah. Rick Dudley, man. We need more of him in our life, which brings me to my next concept. So you know how the NFL is doing their virtual draft this week? Yeah. And things went horribly wrong in their like mock virtual draft and it screwed up with the number one pick. <laughs> I did not hear about that part. I hope the NHL has to go virtual this summer and that horrible things happen to the Hurricanes that result <laughs> in having Rick Dudley at the wheel for their top pick. Have the Wi-Fi go down at Tulski's house. Have Don Waddell hit Control-Alt-Delete and just scramble everything. Maybe the power <laughs> goes out at Tom Dundon's place and Rick Dudley sitting at the wheel how many trades can he make in 10 minutes? I want to know. I, I feel I'm like put, it could I'm, be a lot. I'm putting the over under at five and a half and I'm betting <laughs> the over. Uh, that's, that's a good line. I feel like I wouldn't take that action. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I think, Dom, I think we're ready to redraft. So mm -hmm. I'll let you go number one here. The Florida Panthers probably don't trade back in a redraft, but we'll say that they do. The order stays the same. Pittsburgh Penguins, you're on the clock. Okay, so I just want to talk about my methodology for this because I want you to know that I literally never prepare for podcasts, ever. I just go with the flow and I speak what is in my mind. If it's not in my mind, then it's okay. And it's burned me before, but... That's just the way I live my life. For this one, because it's a redraft, I actually did my homework. So I took the top names or whatever, and I looked at their win values for every year from 2007, 2020, using uh, my own stat, which is game score value added. And then for the years where Fancy stats aren't available. I just used point shares and then I sorted everyone. So that's sort of what I'm basing my list on. And number one with a bullet, Patrice Bergeron is my selection. Yeah, hands down, he has to be the number one. And I've been using point shares to kind of guide a, a few of my thoughts here, but interesting that you were able to pull what is likely a much more accurate description of a player's value using your game score for this and I was when you said point shares I was like oh my god is Fleury gonna rise to the stop to the top which he does with point shares but I'm mm -hmm. glad it landed on Bergeron because I think he's the absolute no-brainer number one in this redraft but sell your pick anyway Dom yeah I think the big thing for me with Bergeron is he is just so untouchable as a two-way forward. He has been nominated for the Selkie Trophy eight years in a row. And only, I think, two other players have ever been nominated for the same award that long. That's Gretzky for the Heart and Bobby Orr for the Norris. 
So Bergeron is the Gretzky or Orr of two-way play is the way I'm selling it. When I did my when I was doing the all-decade team for the athletic earlier this year, I found out that tidbit and it just I think it really hammers home the kind of player Bergeron is. He's probably one of the best defensive forwards ever. And lately he's added an elite goal scoring touch that's been a point per game player in his 30s. And that's just insane that he can still do this this far into his career. Yeah, you said it. Like he is so hands down the best two-way guy since Datsuk that it it's crazy, right? Like his mm-hmm. his possession numbers are they're Datsukian. He's never below 54% since 2009-10 with several seasons above 60% Corsi. He's he's the owner of that awesome meme that Patrice Bergeron is the guy that everyone thinks that Jonathan Taves is. <laughs> and yeah, you said like he's not even slowing down. Yeah, that's the crazy thing. Like how much of that is Marsh and, and and Pasternak, but still like he wouldn't he wouldn't be contributing to this level without being awesome. His ability to play through a laundry list of injuries is absolutely legendary. Yeah. Such a stud playoff guy, including, well, you'll remember this one, the OT winner in game seven, 2013. Oh, I remember. I remember. <laughs> it's painful. I remember it. Bergeron is not even ranked in the Hockey News' top 100 coming into this wow. draft. That's and unreal. The Bruins are bold enough to take him in the second round. And he actually jumps from the second round right into the NHL in 03-04 before the lockout, scoring 39 points in 71 games. Can you think of another guy other than Ryan O'Reilly who jumps straight from the second round into the NHL? No. Like Ryan O'Reilly was the, the other guy that came to mind. I remember he got the Bergeron comparisons when he did that. And that's turned out pretty well for him because he's turned into a great two-way player in his own right. But Bergeron doing that as the 45th overall pick is pretty insane. Oh, my goodness. So you've set up the potential for – we talked about what if the Penguins had Taves. You now have put Patrice Bergeron on the Penguins, setting up a 1-2-3 of – Crosby, Malkin, and Bergeron, and the over-under on cup wins for that team, Dom. Oh, my God. They, had, they got three. Like, yeah. I want to say I want to say they got at least one more, maybe two. Because the thing about Stahl is they had him playing center, but with Bergeron, he had that chemistry with Crosby. He might have just played as Crosby's right winger for the rest of their careers. Yeah, and then he's like, Omega Mark Stone. Yeah. I mean, with how good he is at faceoffs, might have just put Crosby away. <laughs> right. Yeah. The only guy who could uh, ever do that. Yeah. And this actually, this gets forgotten a lot, but Bergeron coming out of the lockout, he is a 70 point guy 
and mm -hmm. he's kind of thought of as an offensive guy, but then he loses a year to concussions and then he comes back as this two-way force that we know him as now. Yeah. That was, that was a scary moment. I remember that. At number two, picking for Carolina and because Bergeron is such a home run at number one, for the best draft class ever, there's quite the drop to the next tier of guys. And I'm bouncing around four or five guys that I could pick here. They're all going to come up in our redraft. I landed on Shea Weber. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the best defenseman in the draft, in my opinion. I think for a long time, he was underrated by analytics people. But I think as we became wiser and the data got a little better, I think he started to have a light sh shine on him a bit more because of how tough his minutes were, how well he played in those minutes, and also just his longevity, the way he's continued being an elite force in this league. When he got traded for P.K. Subban, it felt like, it felt like it would really not work out in Montreal's favor because he was in the older player. He was likely to drop off and he's still going and Subban's on the way down. So it's just weird how that turns out. But I didn't have Weber as high as you did only because I rate forwards higher than defensemen. I think forwards bring more value, but he was the number one defenseman on my board, no doubt. Yeah, because it's just really hard to drive offense as a defenseman but I look at Weber and his resume it stacks up pretty close like just in terms of award voting with the best forwards remaining in this draft class and we talked about what young Phaneuf did and Weber's basically young Phaneuf but for a decade mm-hmm he gets Norris votes in 10 different years. He's the runner-up a couple of times, and he's in the top five three other times. He gets heart votes in five years. He's a first-team All-Star twice and a second-team All-Star twice, and a perennial threat for 20 goals from the blue line. And even though it's borne out that using Weber as the bomb from the point guy is probably the least efficient way that you can run your power play nowadays during a portion of his career it was the most efficient way besides what Ovechkin was doing in Washington yeah I mean I feel like it would have been just wise to put Weber in the Ovechkin spot because he has just such an unreal shot the stuff of legends he shot it I through think, the mesh at the Olympics I mean yeah there you go I think for his entire career, he's always had more goals over what's expected of him. I think he's has like the highest gap compared to like every other defenseman. He's just that good at not only having a hard shot, but like hitting the net, which is a, a skill for a defenseman. And the anti Phaneuf. <laughs> yeah, Phaneuf. His middle name was high and wide. Okay, so at number three. Picking for the Florida Panthers. Let's see who you had ranked number two. All right. My number two was the guy who went number two, Eric Stahl. Okay. I had the exact same pick here. 
And I'm curious to see where you take this because there's an argument for a couple other forwards having a few more better seasons, but maybe not being quite as good consistently. Yeah, I think the the consistency is the key. I think he had that his second year, I think, was probably one of the best seasons of anyone in this draft class where he hit 100 points. Obviously, it was power play fueled in a year where power plays went crazy, but he also had that playoffs where Carolina went to the cup and he was probably their best player, one of them. And Yeah, he leads been, them in scoring that year. Mm-hmm. He's just been so consistent throughout his career and he himself has become a pretty strong two-way force uh, especially in Minnesota I think his xg numbers are just really insane and they have been for most of his career but they really took off in Minnesota he's got an eight-year run starting in that 05-06 season which 100 points 45 goals he finishes fourth in heart voting Mm-hmm. He's a second team all-star. He leads the playoffs in scoring and wins the cup. After that, he, it's basically an eight-year run of 30 goals, 70 points, and he only misses 13 games. Yeah. And that durability is, is key too. For sure. And he does it on like the Hurricanes really don't do much for most of his prime, but he's just a bit of a metronome in churning out those those really strong seasons. He's a beast on that other Hurricane playoff team that takes a run to the conference finals in 09. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you said uh, earlier, he's the only guy in the draft class who has made it to 1,000 points thus far. All right, who are you, who are you taking fourth? Who, who else was on your mind here? Yeah, so at number four, picking for the Columbus Blue Jackets and you can argue that Getzlaff has a couple of better seasons than Eric Stahl so I'm taking Ryan Getzlaff here mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't mind that pick he was definitely in the consideration for me I think after Bergeron there is a pretty close tier of four players for me um, they're all forwards they're all pretty close in win value and I think you can argue in any direction for them Getzlaff is is obviously up there. He was probably one of the best centermen for a pretty decent period of time. His his durability wasn't as high as Stahl's. I think that goes against him and it goes against Getzlaff, and that might be the reason he's a bit lower. But he definitely had a elite career, and he's probably the best playmaker in this draft. Yeah, can you imagine, like, I was picking for Columbus here, and Getzlaff becomes far and away the best player that Rick Nash ever plays with, and can mm-hmm. you imagine those two playing together? Yeah, that'd be, well, I mean, he Rick Nash would probably have the reputation Corey Perry has. Yeah, quite possibly. Well, Corey Perry has another reputation, and let's not put that stink on Rick Nash. <laughs> But yeah, Getzlaff, it, it was interesting. I was reading draft previews and he's described as a poor man's Patrick Marlowe, but instead he turns into a poor man's Joe Thornton. Yeah. That's interesting that that was his thing, especially like I'm looking at his 0405 stats and he had more goals and assists. That doesn't sound like Ryan Getzlaff at all. 
Yeah, that's it's interesting to see what a playmaker that he developed into. And mm-hmm. like they win the cup with Perry and Getzlaff as as key contributors, but they're nowhere near the best players on that team. They're arguably not even first liners on that team, but they make a couple other conference finals and the Ducks are part of that West Coast California trip that was a nightmare for every team for yeah. close to a decade. And the Ducks end up making the playoffs in like 11 of 15 seasons with those guys. And he's a beast in the playoffs. He ends up with heart votes in six different years, including being runner up in 2014, which I weigh pretty heavily. Anytime you're in, you know, the conversation as a top 10 guy in a season is, is quite valuable, which it, I should point out, Eric Stahl also hit. And then, yeah, durability keeps him from having super high point totals, but mm-hmm. he has a couple of 80 point seasons, a 90 point season. Yeah, I, I didn't really look at awards voting, but I think that's a good preface for the guy I think should go fifth overall. And I'm wondering if you feel the same way. I'm really wondering how high you have him. He didn't go in the first round, didn't go in the second round, or the third round, or the fourth round, or the fifth round. I don't, I'm not even sure what round this is in, but he was pick number 205. I'm going with Joe Pavelski. Okay, Joe Pavelski is a little bit farther down the list for me because he doesn't quite have the same highs as some of the other guys. Mm-hmm. I have him at 11, but I could see the argument based on there's a longevity there of being very good. And he ends up being, I think, the number one center on that cup finalist team mm-hmm. for the Sharks. And he certainly was a very, very effective player for a long time for them. But I don't think he quite hit the highs of some of these other guys. Yeah, that's understandable. And part of that is because his best seasons came in years where scoring was down. So from 2013 to 2016, he was a 70-point player high. He got 79-78. And I really think that he should have got a lot more love for end-of-year awards in those years than he did, mostly because he was getting, he was putting up those numbers while also having Bergeron-esque two-way ability. And I think part of that was playing with Joe Thornton. But when I'm, anytime I look at the numbers, anytime I look at his game score, anytime I look at war, anytime I look at anything like that, Pavelski has always been near the top. And when we start looking at why the Sharks are such a good expected goals team, I think Pavelski is at the heart of that. And I think he is an extremely strong play driver, play driver, probably second to Berger on this draft class. And he may not have scored as many points as Stahl or Getzlaff, but I think he, because he does that, he ranks really highly for me. Interesting. So he does, he gets heart votes in a couple of years and he ends Mm -hmm. up being a second team all-star in one season. So that puts him into that range of being 
I was a top 10 guy one year and mm-hmm. he's a Selkie guy in 11 different seasons. Yeah. I, uh, when I was, I was looking at, uh, I guess game score for past years and I was like rebuilding my model to see like what each player's true talent was. And Pavelski was like seriously, like near the top 10 or in the top 10 for I think a good five year period. He was that good. And, there was one year, it was the conference final year, where he was actually somehow number one. And I don't think he was the best player in the world then, but it was the year that Crosby was playing with under Mike Johnston, and he just had that awful, awful start to the season. And that really, like, sewered his numbers. And Pavelski was still at a high level. I think he was a 40-40 guy and putting up these insane Bergeron-esque two-way numbers. And so he had a really high standing uh, by my model in that year. And then that's the year that the Sharks go all the way to the final. I think Pavelski was a pivotal part of that. Interesting. I think you really sold Pavelski well to me. I, I can't really argue with any of that. I'm starting to question some, some, of, the, some of the players that I had ahead of him. Yeah, and I, I can imagine those players are, are good. They're in the conversation. This is a talented and deep draft class, but I think Pavelski is, it might be like the Rodney Dangerfield of our era because he, I don't think he got the love that he really deserved. He's been really good for a really long time. It's, it's kind of sad to see that he's not doing quite as effectively in Dallas. Mm-hmm. And that makes you wonder whether it really was a lot of it was Joe Thornton. And because Pavelski was the goal scorer, maybe he gets a bit too much credit for that. That's also a possibility. But I still think he was a, a great player in his own right. Yeah, he's he's like a top 10 hand-eye in front of the net guy. Oh, yeah. Might be one of the, the best of all time with the way he, he tipped pucks. So that was for the Sabres at number five and they get instant impacts from Thomas Vanek in 0506 and 0607 which mm-hmm. are basically the last times that the Sabres were relevant but yeah. they have some decent teams with Ryan Miller beyond that and you wonder what trading Pavelski for Vanek would do for some of those Ryan Miller teams. I mean, they'd play defense better. (laughs) Oh, no question. Okay. Number six, the San Jose Sharks. And I find myself leaning towards defense as well. And I'm torn between hitting super duper highs or being really, really good for a long time. And I landed mm-hmm. on Ryan Suter, really, really good for a long time. Yeah, uh, I'm with you in picking Suter over uh, Brent Burns. I think you can go either way. They're both really close in my books, and they're the next two best defensemen. I, I have a few forwards, not a few actually, just a couple forwards ahead of Suter, but I can see the argument. I think like Weber, he was one of the best defensemen for his era. And it's surprising he never got a Norris win because he, I think when you think about 
the Norris, it's always points and offense. But as a pure defensive defenseman, I think Suter was one of the best players in that way of his era. And if there was a defensive defenseman award, I think he'd have a few of those. Yeah, you would have to think so. He ends up getting the runner-up for the Norris one time, and he's in the top five a couple other times. He gets heart votes in three years, and I think all of those end up being with Minnesota. So it's interesting that he had to get that huge contract and, and switch teams to another like relatively smaller market to, but to really land on people's radar. He only makes a end of season all-star team that one year, his first year in Minnesota, where he's on the first team. He's just a minute muncher for forever and does it really well. Yeah. Yeah. The, the way he eats minutes is just insane. I feel like there were some years where he almost hit 30. Yeah. He's up to 29 minutes in a couple of wild seasons. Yeah. That's insane. Okay, so number seven, the Nashville Predators. They actually took Suter, but I think you're going with a forward here. I am, and I'm going with uh, Suter's buddy that joined him in Minnesota. I'm going to take uh, Zach Barise. Okay, I had him listed as my number seven guy as well, but that's because I didn't have Pavelski as a top five guy. Mm-hmm. So Parise. He hangs around long enough to be like, he's still quite relevant, but he only really has the two amazing seasons. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those years were really, really good though. Um, He had, what do you have? 90, 94 points. The devils. That was an insane year. He was fifth in heart voting. Honestly, I, I feel like he maybe should have, I don't really remember the year correctly let me let me look at the it was the yeah i mean steve mason was fourth come on give me a break that was a crazy steve mason season though i mean he had he a 916 yeah and i feel like a lot of that might have had, had something to do with columbus's defense maybe like he only had a 916 save percentage what's going yeah, on here that was the ken hitchcock system that produced shutouts yeah. like no other yeah but Ovechkin, Malkin, Datsuk, top three. Probably can't argue with that. But Parise, I'm going to put him ahead of Mason. Um, and <laughs> a number four finish isn't that bad. Um, he is someone my model really has liked over the years. He's been a strong play driver, play driver as well for most of his career. And he has added the ability to score a lot of goals in the process. And though he never matched the highs of the 94-point season, the 82-point season, he was... He's been really consistent, although he hasn't been very durable. So that obviously plays against him. Yeah, he tears his knee after those two outrageous seasons where mm-hmm. he's he, the only two years that he got heart votes, and he's never the same. You, you really wonder what could have been there. Absolutely. He was, he was such a darling at that point. Because he like he starts bubbling up slowly those first couple of years where he's like 30 goal, 60 point guy. And then mm-hmm. when he comes out with that two-year stretch and he's a part of Team USA at the 2010 Olympics as well. And he's awesome there. And he's way up on the radar. And then 
blows out his knee, loses a year. He is a part of that cup finalist team in, in 2012, but he's just, just not the same. No, no, he's not. All right. Who are you going for with uh, after Frieza number eight? At number eight, the Atlanta Thrashers, they took a stay at home defenseman. But mm, I am I don't going think you're doing to that. take the absolute opposite of that, Brent Burns. And you would be much better off doing that. Uh, yeah. Brent Burns, that's, uh, that's a good pick in my book. Are you, you, you're going really defenseman heavy. Not personal, personally my style, but I respect it because when you're thinking about valuable defensemen, it's hard to get anyone more valuable than Weber, Suter, and Burns for this era. And Burns is the exact opposite of a Ryan Suter. And you kind of wonder what they would look like playing together. I feel like that would be just an unreal duo. But Burns, it took him a while for him to really find his stride. But once he did, he, like, he's honestly been one of the best defensemen in the league. I know some people will scoff because he's not the best at actually playing defense. But he helped revolutionize the idea that defense doesn't mean defense only and he sort of works as a a fourth forward and I think that really helped the Sharks be such a high octane team so tough to play against absolutely taking this pick for Atlanta is really interesting because obviously they're not even in Atlanta anymore and things go so poorly for them there and Burns doesn't hit his stride until he's 29 and has been in the league for seven years already. And his, like, his situation is crazy. So he gets drafted at number 20 by the Wild as a forward. He played defense when he first got into the OHL. They switch him to forward in his draft year, and he's kind of good. So Minnesota takes him at forward. And then he comes to the league and then he moves back to defense. And then they end up trading him to the Sharks and he plays a year of defense. And he's okay, but like they've already got Dan Boyle and and Vlasic and a bunch of stay-at-home guys like Brad Stewart and Doug Murray. So then he gets moved to forward again. And he plays there for two years on the Thornton line. And it's not until he's 29 that he moves back to defense and turns into the Brent Burns that we know. So the his five-year peak after getting moved back to defense is Dion Phaneuf on steroids. Mm-hmm. 17 goals, 60 points, Norris votes. Then 27 goals, 75 points, finishes third in the Norris. He's getting heart votes. He's a second-team All-Star. Oh, one more level, 29 goals, 76 points, wins the Norris, fourth in the heart trophy, first-team All-Star. We'll follow that up with 12 goals, 67 points, only, only gets some Norris votes. And then last year, 16 goals, 83 points. He's the runner-up for the Norris. He gets heart votes. He's a first-team all-star. And he doesn't miss a game. Mm-hmm. Very durable. 
And when you go back and look at Brent Burns at the draft, he's this clean cut, goofy looking lanky kid who I don't even think he weighs 200 pounds on draft day. And then you get the whole, like the evolution of Brent Burns all time NHL meme. Yeah, he he's the Wookiee. He's he's the definition of a, a man beast, and it's amazing that his peak came after the age of twenty nine. I, f- I find it weird that he was a forward, then a defenseman, then a forward defenseman. I wonder if playing forward for the Sharks helped him become what he what he always had the potential to be, which is the first like true forward defenseman combo for them on the back end. Yeah, that's it's that's a very interesting thought experiment. Would he have been able to play that rover role if not for being used in that way? And like he was awesome as a forward. He doesn't yeah. have great numbers, but like that dude on the forecheck and in the net front, crazy man. And I mean well, I was just going to say interesting to take him for Atlanta because they end up with the other guy with a similar trajectory mm-hmm. in Dustin Bufflin, who's like Brent Burns light, but in also draft. Brent Burns heavy. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's weird they both went in this draft too. Yeah. I don't know what's going on there. There's something in the water, but uh, Brent Burns – rover position at number eight picking for the calgary flames at number nine i'm thinking you're not going to take dion no um no spoilers but dion is uh at the bottom of my short list so he's not even he's not in the, yeah, i have a top 15 and i have a short list of candidates afterwards and dion Phaneuf is at the bottom of that uh 10 person short list so maybe like 25th which is um, still awesome. It's still great, but yeah. And to think like Dion from up at 25, this is a, this is a deep draft. Oh, yeah. Um, but I'm going with another forward because you took all the defensemen. And I'm going to take, uh, as you said, the only guy to win a Hart Trophy, and that's Corey Perry. Yeah, that's who I had in this slot as well. Sorry, I thought you were, were going to add some stuff to that. Um, I, I've, I, mean, I spilled all my Corey Perry juice earlier. Yeah, I mean, that 50-goal season was utter insanity. Like, he, like I remember turning on SportsCenter every morning, and Corey Perry scores another goal. Corey Perry gets a hat trick. It was just like, this guy couldn't be stopped. And I feel like that recency bias played a role in that Hart Trophy win. Is that the year he won? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was just a monster that year. Regressed to the mean the year after, but he still had a couple of 70-point seasons, 80-point seasons, and probably one of the better goal scorers in this draft. Yeah. Were you playing fantasy in 2011 when he goes on that run and drags that Duck team to the playoffs? I was. Uh, my fantasy league started in, I think, grade 11. So around 2008-9 was probably the first year I played fantasy. Okay, so whoever had Corey Perry that year probably won. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like whoever did was 
an insufferable jackass, and I don't remember who it was. But well, that, if, that's perfectly fitting for for Corey Perry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, Perry is fourth in goal scoring from this draft class, behind some pretty good goal scorers. Yeah, one of them who hasn't been picked yet. Indeed, he's lingering out there. All right, so I think that brings me up at number 10 for the Montreal Canadiens. And trying to think what direction. I think we've kind of hit another drop-off point here. And I'm going wild card here and taking Marc-Andre Fleury. That, that is who I had next. I'm not going to lie. I was, I was skeptical of taking a goalie because I think they're random. But Marc-Andre Fleury is, is really high up there for uh, goalie war, according to Evolving Hockey, uh, over his career and his point shares before that data are insane too. So based on that, he should be higher, but I gave him deductions for being a goalie, and so I'd put him in the top 10, I think, still. Yeah, and I'm just thinking about what happens if the Canadians end up with Fleury in this draft. Like, they've already got Jose Theodore at this point, mm-hmm. but this is a year after his Hart Trophy season, so he's already, like, starting to fall off. And Fleury would represent the future, but just, like, adding another big French goalie to the Montreal Canadiens would just insanity pandemonium like the only thing that would be worse would be getting a big french centerman Mm -hmm. yeah and then they don't end up taking price either probably right well and like more weird goalie connections with the habs in this draft they take yarrow halak really Mm -hmm. late and flurry has the better career and is way more capable as a number one guy, but Halak has some absolute monster years for the Canadians as a tandem guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to lie. Halak's in my top 15, so I'll talk to him when I pick him. Okay. We'll, we'll save him. And one more Montreal connection and goalies in this draft class is Corey Crawford who yeah. is notorious for wrecking the Habs every time he goes to Montreal. Yeah, maybe that's a pretty good career. Him. Yeah, yeah, would, <laughs> would have been nice. Um, so obviously you prefer Fleury to the other goaltenders in this class. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do. Um, I think that's just because of longevity and the fact he was a proven number one, but... There's some surprising numbers that we'll get to in a second. But uh, for number 11, I'm going to veer away from goalies for a second and take Jeff Carter. And that's the, guy, yeah, yeah. that's the guy who got picked there anyway. He is, what, the number two goal scorer from this draft class? Yes. Let me click sort. He's number three after Parisi. Okay. Yeah, just so steady. Mm -hmm. but my quibble with Carter is there's not one point in his career where I think 
you would have wanted him as your number one centerman. Is he Ole Jokinen with better PR and <laughs> way better teams? Yeah. Um, I think just the one year, which is 2008-09. And I don't even know if he was playing center that year. But he had 46 goals, April points. That was his peak. But aside from that, I think he was the blueprint for the ideal number two centerman, which is a really good first-line centerman, but not a guy who you actually want as your first-line centerman. So he was that, I think, for the Flyers. And then he was that for a very long time for the Kings behind Kopitar. And I think that was a big part of what made that team so successful. Yeah, like he's basically 25-plus goals and 60 points for a decade and Mm. is awesome in the playoffs for both of those teams. Yeah. Yeah, he was – he's had had some insane runs. And that 2013-14 playoffs, he had 25 points in 26 games. He was a beast. Yeah, he was just wrecking other teams' second and third lines mm-hmm. while ever, like the rest of the team was just playing shutdown. Yeah, I think he was the reason that Anaheim went out and got Ryan Gessler. Mayhaps, and certainly a very good counterexample. Mm-hmm. Okay, so at number 12... Picking for the New York Rangers, I literally cannot do worse. (laughs) I have them picking Ryan Kessler. Interesting. He he was on my – he was in my top 15 until I actually paid attention to goalies that weren't flurry. And I had to – make some bumps, but he, he just missed the cut for me. I think at his peak, he was really, really good. I think underrated because we didn't really have the stats back then. But in that 2010-11 year where... He wins the Selkie. Where he wins the Selkie and he gets 75 points in 82 games. 40 goals. Oh, sorry. Uh, he gets 73 and 82. He got 75 the year before. I think those two years, you could make an argument that he, with the two-way value he provided, he was almost on the same level as what the Sedins were providing for the Canucks as well. He allowed them to reach their peak offensive potential by taking away all the tough matchups and really cleaning up the defensive end while still being a strong offensive player in his own right. Yeah, I just remember him as being not the best defensive centerman of this generation because obviously that's mm-hmm. Patrice Bergeron, but he was in the conversation as the number two. And yeah. he was such a menace on teams that really mattered, both when he was with Vancouver and then, as you referenced, with Anaheim. His first few years there... I think they make the conference finals two times in his, in his first three years there. And he is an absolute menace on the four check with that long, powerful stride and was just driven to fuck your shit up. Yeah. Yeah, he definitely was. Um, he was, he was an elite two way player. He was 
in that conversation and he wasn't in that conversation nearly as long, but he still pulled out five Selkie nominations during his career, which is pretty good. And with the one victory, obviously. Yeah. And we know Selkie being what it is as like a reputation type award. He really doesn't show up on the Selkie radar until he's a 70 point guy. Mm -hmm. So he, like, uh, I don't know the numbers, but he's probably popping up as a very good two-way guy even before that. Yeah, and that's that's tough to know because his first time getting votes is 07, 08. So that's when we started getting that data. And then in 08, 09, he gets his first nomination. So I'm not sure. I, re I really wonder what it, it would have looked like in his early years because I, I recall, I don't remember which year, but he, he was got an offer sheet. Did he not? Yeah, that was the St. Louis Blues. They love their offer sheets. <laughs> Indeed they do. And I think Vancouver countered with one for maybe David Backus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I don't think he'll be drafted because he's number 15 on my list, but Backus I had just slightly ahead of Kessler as well, but they were so, so close. And Backus never had the highs that Kessler did. But I think he, like Pavelski, was really underrated. I think the backbone of St. Louis and just so consistent as well. Yeah, you're talking to a guy who, in honor of this draft, is wearing proudly his St. Louis Blues <laughs> David Backus team jersey. Nice. And huge Backus fanboy. So, no, I don't think he's going in our redraft, but I'm, I'm awfully tempted because he is basically – a light version of Kessler. Yeah. For me. Huge pain in the ass. Uh, a great possession driver. Um, he, I'm surprised he rates higher than Kessler by game score value added, but I'm guessing that Kessler's rapid descent to awfulness at the end of his career probably did him no favors. Interesting. And they're both just sitting there as albatrosses on the Anaheim Ducks. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Up at number 13 for the Los Angeles Kings. This is uh, where I will take goaltender Yaroslav Halak. Interesting. So, goodness, I don't – have they drafted Jonathan Quick by this point? Um, I don't know. I don't care, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm just going best player available. Yeah, their goaltending is not good at this point in their franchise, so you could run with it. And no, they haven't even taken quick yet, so no. they're looking for solutions. They're looking for solutions. I don't think they're looking at pick 271 to reach for Yarrow Halak, but I think this will this may surprise you considering – the game's played, but based on Evolving Hockey's goalie war, Yaroslav Halak from 2007 to 2020 was worth 28.4 wins. Marc-Andre Fleury, 28 wins. So Halak was more valuable than Fleury despite playing fewer games. And that, it, to me, it's amazing he never really got a chance as a full time starter and maybe he didn't have it in him because I, I do recall St. Louis giving it a go and not really loving him but when I was doing 
my model back and really looking in that year where Montreal upset the Capitals, I had Yaroslav Lack rated as the second best goal in the league. And he was really, really highly rated. And if we had expected goals back during his playing days, I think he would have been more highly revered because he showed up very well for that. He just played on a lot of really bad defensive teams. Yeah, those Habs teams that he played on mm-hmm. were they were just like pure rope dope hockey with an awesome power play and please God let the goalie save us. And they did. Yeah. Yeah. And then when he went to the Islanders, they they didn't have trots yet and they were a mess back there. Oh Dougie Wait. Yeah. Okay, and you but don't we want Doug Waite back just for the absolute chaos that those Islanders games were. I do miss that era of the Islanders. Um, so I do wish that would come back, but I think they're, uh, they're better off without him right now. Yeah, most definitely. <laughs> I'm, I'm so intrigued by Halak having so much better value. Was he so far ahead of his time that he invented the timeshare goalie and no one realized it? I mean, maybe. And he was really good at being that timeshare goalie. But I I wonder what his career would have looked like if he got a better chance as a, as a starter. Because I remember St. Louis, the year that... It was 2011-12 when the Kings won their first cup and I think the Blues won the President's Trophy. Like, I'm pretty sure Elliott was their playoff goalie yeah. for like a little bit of that. Um, I think a couple of years later, they decided to just give up on Halak and get Ryan Miller, who wasn't anywhere near as good as he used to be. And yeah, just some of Halak's numbers have been crazy. And I think the last two years in Boston really speak volumes or maybe not this year, but last year where he came over and he performed better than Tukarask did. Yeah. I think he's like, he might be the best one B goalie that we've seen in a really long time. Mm -hmm. I would quibble with the idea that we've never, we haven't really seen it in any time that a team tried he got banged up. So we haven't seen him as that number one guy. Mm -hmm. And maybe, maybe he's just not up to that, but he's as good as you'll get if he's starting 50 or less. Yeah. His, his best season though, uh, 2014, 15, his first year at the Islanders. And that was the year that it looked like the Islanders were really taking the next step. And Halak was a big part of that. And he was worth, 3.8 3.8 wins that year, playing 59 games. So I think that was his best year as a starter. Um, although he did have that great year in 2009-10 with the Habs, stealing yeah. the net from Carey Price, too. A fantastic what-if. Mm-hmm. And certainly an underrated career. I didn't have him. I'm, I'm not going to pretend like I had him in my top 15. He's an off-the-board pick. I recognize that, but... And you know what? The data might not be that great. Maybe it oversells how good Halak was. But I think 
he's definitely a what if situation, but when he did play, he was, he's really high up there. Well, and he drags those, oh, those Canadian teams to two Mm. conference finals. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, he is very good. I I still don't know if he's going in the top 50. Here's one for you. What if the Penguins had a reliable backup for more of Fleury's time? Could they have used him in a similar type scenario and gotten more out of him? Yeah, can you imagine like 2011-12 when Flurry can't stop a beach ball? They have Halak as the trump card coming in. Oh, well, I guess that's kind of what they end up with in the first cup season with Murray. Yeah, exactly. And Halak was there available at a 271. So I don't think they're taking two goalies in the same draft, but it's a pretty interesting what if. So one more on Halak, because he's a free agent this summer. Mm-hmm. Who, who's going out and stealing him? Uh, I'm not sure, uh, but I think he'll be an asset to whichever team he does. Uh, well, I'm not sure about asset. I have no idea how old he is, so maybe he's done cooked, but he had a pretty decent season still with Boston this year. Yeah, I mean, he's like 35, 36 mm-hmm. now. So not too much left. Maybe not, but maybe maybe all the years as uh, as a one B guy have left a ton in the tank. Maybe yeah. Okay, picking for the Chicago Blackhawks at number fourteen. My list has just gotten all jumbled because you just halak <laughs> attacked me. So I got to scramble up here a little bit and find well. I'm going defenseman, but he played forward for them. Dustin Bufflin. Yeah, he he was on my short list, not my top 15 because of the whole ranking uh, forwards over defensemen for value. But, I mean, he played some four and he's pretty good at it, so I can see it. I think right now we're in a range where everyone's, like, really close still. So I can see the argument for Bufflin. And I think if he played this year, he would have – shot up higher because he'd have a more an extra season of value added to his resume. But he he's a unique creature with his size and just how terrifying he is to go up against. Yeah, he's he's something miraculous the way that he would I'm fairly certain that he played himself into shape every single season that he was in the league few years back i think this is just at the start of the jets being in winnipeg and he shows up in in my small town of dryden ontario to do some fishing and he shows up at the bar one night and so i'm getting these text messages pictures of bufflin wearing this bright pink polo golf shirt and he looks like he's 300 pounds I think like, he hit 300 a couple times in his career. Like just a brick shit house, and I I have to figure it was like that every season for him, and mm-hmm. what he was able to do. Like we talked about it before, he's basically Brent Burns light, but also Brent Burns heavy. Um, let's, let's just talk about your 
the scary decor of Weber, Burns, Bufflin, all in the same half class. Yeah, this is this is up there with 2008 among lethal defense groups. Mm-hmm. And arguably even better. Yeah. Depending. And they're they're all drafted by you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, fair enough. I, I really like them. Um, uh, I don't think I took a single defenseman. No, I'm, I'm hoarding them all. I just want to talk about Rick Dudley a little bit more because he's involved in the Bufflin story. Of course, yeah. So he's the AGM on the Blackhawks in 09, and he leaves before they win the Cup. He goes to Atlanta to be the AGM of the Thrashers. And then Don Waddell gets fired, so he takes over. And then after the Blackhawks win the 2010 Cup, he starts snapping up Blackhawks. And so <laughs> I, I do recall that, yeah. He picks up Dustin Bufflin, Akeem Aliu, Ben Eager, and Brent Sopel, along with a second for a first Marty Reasoner, Jeremy Moret, and Joey Crabb. And by the way, that first ends up being Kevin Hayes, and that second ends up becoming Justin Hole. And then Dudley later trades Ivan Vishnevsky in a second for Andrew Ladd. And then he, Bufflin, goes over to Atlanta and moves to defense and gives us eight years of being like a 15-goal, 23-minute-in-a-night, just strangely graceful rhino on defense. (laughs) Yeah, he... And it seemed at the time like that was a huge overpay, like just getting that cut pedigree. But it really worked out for them. Bufflin and Ladd are both unreal for the Thrasher Jets franchise. Yeah, those guys were cornerstones really up until now. Mm -hmm. And do you think we've seen the last of Bufflin? Uh, I'm not sure. I feel like he'll come back or else they wouldn't have terminated the contract, I think. He wants to be a free agent, uh, but I'm honestly not sure. Hmm. Well, I really hope we see him again because he is, I mean, there's so many entertaining players in this class, but he's got to be top five most entertaining. Mm -hmm. Okay, so rounding out our picks here, number 15, the Edmonton Oilers. Can can you pick a good one for for my hometown team here? Uh. I actually didn't realize it would be the Edmonton Oilers, but I will. It's funny enough because the person I'm taking is someone they tried to acquire an offer sheet with uh, four first round picks on the table as compensation. That's Mr. Thomas Vanek. Interesting. Okay. So Vanek has that one awesome season, and then he's got like a bunch of Jeff Carter esque type number seasons but mm-hmm. as a winger who's only trying to score. Yeah. We're not, we're not mistaking him for uh, a defensive workhorse here. We know Vanek's game is to score goals and score goals only. 
But sometimes you need that, and there were very few players better than him at it. Yeah, he scores 40 goals two different times, and he actually makes a second-team All-Star team in 06-07 when he mm-hmm. throws up 40 goals and 80 points on, again, like the last really good Sabres team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was insane that year, and considering that was one of his first few years and he was still so young, you can see why Edmonton might want to shut out four first-round picks. But, I mean, can you imagine if that went through? Well, they would have all been first overall, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would have been madness. Well, at least they didn't have 1990s RFA compensation. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> Or else it could have been five. Obviously, you ran your model and built things kind of based around that. But getting near towards the end, how did you quibble between who to leave as an honorable mention and who to who to pick in and around towards the end? Uh, I sort of went by my lists. I didn't really deviate too much, but. There were definitely tiers of players where they were so close that it was such a tough call between a few. Like I had Pavelski and Parise really close. Um, I had Stahl really close to them. Stahl, Parise, Pavelski, Getzlaff were all like sort of clustered together. And if you, you can probably put Weber in that combo too as defense and the value he was able to get. And just even like just after Bergeron, like there was such a huge cluster of guys who were just extremely good during their primes. Yeah, absolutely. So we mentioned Bergeron as a slam dunk at the top and how this is the best draft ever. But outside of Bergeron, do you think there are any Hall of Famers in this draft? It's it's an interesting question. Um I feel like they'll put Marc-Andre Fleury in because he has those cup wins and he has a high league standing. I don't know if I agree with it, but I think he'll be in there. Corey Perry has a heart trophy, so I think he has a case because of that. I think he's still iffy, but that does help. Um, Burns has a Norris trophy. I think he might get there. Weber was consistently good. I think he's probably the closest uh, along with Bergeron. And then I think Eric Stahl has a pretty good case as long as well as Getzlaff. Yeah, I think those guys stood out. I only have Bergeron myself, but the crazy thing is these guys are still adding to their resumes. Yeah, that's the thing. So I don't think they're – I think Bergeron's the only one who's a slam dunk right now, but I think there's still time. I, th- I think Weber will get in, though. Yeah, I would. I would have to think. And – there's also international hockey considerations for a lot of these guys. Mm-hmm. And uh, a couple more questions just to round this thing out. Um, is there anyone from this draft class that even kind of knowing how their career played out that you still irrationally believe in? <laughs> uh, I, I'm not too sure, but I feel like, at the time, Mike Richards' decline was really surprising to me. Like, this guy looked unreal with the Flyers, and 
I think we all know why he declined. And this is a PSA for the kids listening to not do drugs. Just speculating. But I mean, we all know pretty much what, uh, what was going on there with uh, Dry Island in Philadelphia. And it's a real shame, but he really had the talent. And even knowing that what was going on behind closed doors is still surprising. Yeah, I, I totally am on board with that one. My answer for this was Patrick O'Sullivan. Mm. Crazy talent, but oh, God, the demons. And poor guy was not self-inflicted. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Is Louis Erickson still underrated or when did, <laughs> when, when did that die? Um, he might be underrated for this draft. He is, let me... Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. He's 11th in scoring in this draft, which is pretty crazy. I would not have guessed that. Yeah, and he was he was really close on my list, but not in the top 15, no. No kidding. Okay, in retrospect, Dom, who do you think won this draft? Um, me. I think I won it. I think because yeah. I had my top, I got my top four picks, I think. Like I had, uh, I had Bergeron, Stolpovelsky, Parise as my top four, and I got them all. So I'm feeling pretty good. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, uh, allow me to reword the question. Uh, in retrospect, having seen kind of like knowing what the players turned into to now, which teams, which team won this draft coming out of it in '03? Um. That is a better rephrasal of the question. Um, I think it's Pittsburgh. They get Bergeron. End of story. Can I entertain you with a couple of names or a couple of the best hockey names from this draft class? Absolutely. Okay. So we mentioned the man with three names, Jean-Francois Jacques. Byron Bits. Great name. Bruno Gervais. I remember these names. Like, these guys played NHL hockey, did they not? Oh, yeah. Tanner Glass. Everyone knows Tanner Glass. Guy's a legend. You can't not know Tanner Glass. Dustin Bufflin is an Mm all-timer. And then I'm going to throw this one out there. You don't know this one. Dirk Southern. (laughs) That's a good one. I'm... I'm looking at the second round and 10 picks apart, two guys in Constantine went. Not Konstantin Glasishev and Konstantin Pushkarev. And those are some legendary names that, uh, that have 17 games combined between them. They did not live up to their name. There's a third value. Constantine. <laughs> I'm sorting by name. How many more Constantine? There were five Constantines in this draft. That's, that's an entire starting lineup. 17 games between them. We got Constantine Barulin. We got the two mentioned before. And then we got Constantine Volkov and Constantine Zhukarov. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I don't know what happened in 1985 where all of Russia decided to name their kid Constantine, but I'm sad that none of them 
became legit NHLers. I wonder if it's an astronaut. It might be. And with that, I think we're all done with the 2003 NHL redraft. Dom, you've been more than generous with your time. I really appreciate you coming on. I appreciate you actually doing homework for a podcast, which apparently you don't do. So that <laughs> is fantastic. Uh, Dom, what, what do you got going on? I understand you've got uh, some great things happening over on World 2 for the Athletic. <laughs> Yeah, Earth 2 is, has been really fun at The Athletic. It, it's been tough for uh, anyone to make content right now, and I'm happy to be at a place where they let me play fake games on a pretend Earth with all the other beat writers that I work with. And basically, I use my model to simulate a game, and then I tell the beat writers for that team to tell me a story about how that game went in their mind and they do it. And it's been a lot of fun. Um, some people in the comments aren't appreciative of our fan fiction, but to them, I say, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think, uh, I think you have grown quite the God complex over on <laughs> earth too. <laughs> and I respect you immensely for it. Dom, once again, thank you so much for coming on the pod. No problem. I appreciate it. And I really hope that there are people sitting through two hours of us chatting about the draft to get to the real good stuff. Me discovering that the 2003 draft had not one, not two, but five Constantines. All right, everyone. That's our show. I hope you enjoyed it. Stick tap to Dom Luschician of The Athletic for doing his homework and winning this redraft. Shout out to the five Constantines. Please like, subscribe, and review the Steve Laidlaw pod wherever you get your podcasts. And tune in for the next one.